Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 140. Today in the show, we are joined by Kip Adams of the Quality Deer Management Association. We're discussing the latest deer harvest trends and current issues impacting deer and deer hunters, such as changing habitat, disease, urban deer management, and much, much more. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today in the show, I'm joined by Kip Adams of the Quality Deer Management Association. And as he's done for us the past few years, Kip is going to share his annual State of the Whitetail update. And by that, I mean Kip's going to share with us a variety of updates related to the latest deer harvest numbers and trends from across the country, as well as some insight into the most pressing issues related to deer and deer hunting currently, such as whitetail habitat degradation, trends in fawn recruitment, the latest on diseases such as EHD and CWD, and much, much more. And it's really going to be an interesting conversation, I think, and it should nicely set the stage for us for the rest of 2017. I think it'll put us in a position where we all kind of have a good idea of the state of the resource as we kick off this new year and start planning our, our deer hunting projects and hunts and all that good stuff. So, since we are without my trusty co-host Dan today, we're going to quickly bring Kip on here with us. But first, we briefly need to pause to thank our partners at Sitka Gear for their support of this podcast. And as we've done the past few weeks, we're back with Jessica DeLorenzo, who is one of the female hunters involved in designing and testing the new women's line of clothing from Sitka. And today, to wrap things up, I asked Jess to tell us just a little bit about what it felt like to finally, you know, to have put in so much work to create this women's gear and then to finally see it all come together in the real world. It was pretty exciting the first time that I got some prototypes to test, um, seeing the ideas that we had come up with in the, the beginning stages of brainstorming and having them in a, like a physical form. And the, the first couple of times that I went out hunting and it was just like this eureka moment, like this is finally happening and um, everything just was coming together, and it's worked out really well. We're really, really, really proud of it and excited the way it's turned out because um, we just wanted it to be, uh, like, a, no frills. We wanted it to be a tool, and we wanted it to be functional, the same as 
what they offer currently for men. Um, so to see that transition into the women's functionality and systems has been awesome. And did any moment stand out to you during this whole process, especially afterwards? Um, I think the one that pops out immediately is I was able to go on an antelope spot and stalk with Bo with Amanda Caldwell. And uh, we were field testing some of the women's big game gear for that hunt. And it was really tough and exciting, and it was successful for me. And just to be able to share that with Amanda, who I'm great friends with, and be able to use some of the products that we helped design was really special. So if you'd like to learn more about the women's gear or sign up to pre-order some, you can visit sitkagear.com slash women's. And now, back to the show and our conversation with Mr. Kip Adams. All right, with me now on the line is Kip Adams. How are you, Kip? I'm doing good, Mark. How are you doing today? It's good. I'm doing well. I'm uh, I'm excited to have you back. You are you are I think a three time guest now on the podcast. So uh, so we appreciate you continuing to uh, to come along for this crazy ride. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Uh, absolutely, it's my pleasure. I always enjoy talking with you. Yeah. So since last time we talked, um, I'm curious how how did your 2016 hunting season go? It was great. Uh, we, I hung out of a traditional camp here in northern Pennsylvania, and, and, and we arguably had the best year we have ever had. And, uh, and that says a lot because we've had a lot of good years. Um, part of it, though, we had uh, six kids that were between 10 and 12 years old hunting out of camp, and uh, that alone made it a tremendous year. So lots of fun to have that youth. Um, actually, those, those six kids, they, they shot uh, four bucks and a bear. So uh, wow. they did really well. How big of a property is this that this group's hunting? We have, uh, we're very fortunate that it's my family farm uh, that, that my grandparents uh, put together a long time ago. Uh, it's 700 acres total, and uh, we have anywhere between usually 15 adults and then uh, a bunch of kids that hunted each year. So this year uh, we had about 20 different people hunting on it. So we, uh, we're very lucky to have that. We know in many cases uh, we put a lot, a lot of hunting pressure on it, so we have to be very smart about how we hunt it. But um, it's very important to us to, to, to share that property with friends and, and family. So uh, it, uh, it's quite a, a hunting tradition that we have there and certainly looking forward to, to pass that to the next generation. And uh, six uh, young ones at camp this year uh, made a big smile on a bunch of people's faces. So hopefully we're going to pass that tradition on and keep it going strong. Yeah, that's awesome. That's great to have that many new people coming into it and young folks getting involved. Um, in addition to that type of youth participation, was it a good year from a you know harvest standpoint, management standpoint, any of those types of things? It really was. Uh, we typically only shoot one or two bucks a year. Um, we have before we tell our kids to, to shoot whatever they're allowed and, and highly encouraged to shoot any buck. And uh, the adults all follow uh, the guidelines where the deer has to be at least three and a half years old or have a 16-inch inside spread. And we have some guys in our camp that are, are glad to shoot any three-year-olds. Uh, we have some guys that, that typically don't shoot three-year-olds that will want them to get a little older. And uh, we're involved with a, with a QDM cooperative, which means, you know, many of our neighbors are doing very similar things. So any given year, we, we truly have the chance to harvest deer that are three, four, five, six, or, or even seven years old. So it's... It's worked out extremely well for us over the years. Uh, and in addition to those bucks that I told you that our kids killed, and actually one of those uh, used killed uh, killed a really nice three-and-a-half-year-old buck. Um, but in addition to those, we killed three other bucks that were three-and-a-half. I'm sorry, two other bucks that were three-and-a-half and a, a four-and-a-half-year-old. So wow. we typically shoot one or two bucks that are three or older, and, and this year we killed four of them, four really nice deer that were three or four years old. So out, an outstanding year for us by all accounts. 
Now, would you would you say that's that's uncommon for the area? I mean, when I typically think of Pennsylvania, that's one of the states. Uh, you know, I'm stereotyping here, generalizing here, but it's one of the states that traditionally has not been the best opportunity state for older age class bucks. I know that's starting to change. Is that is that what you guys have seen too? Has this been a, a big change for you over recent years? It has certainly been changing in Pennsylvania across the state. Um, and our part of the state, we started this cooperative uh, about a decade ago, uh, very similar to, to many of the cooperatives that you have in Michigan. And, uh, and there's about 2,000 acres where almost every landowner joins each other that uh, that protects younger deer. And, and some people have even more restrictive uh, buck harvest regulations than we do. So uh, if you take a look at the neighborhood, that 2,000 acres, um, we had uh, about an average year, um, which by most accounts is a very, very good year. Um, it turned out that our camp shot a couple more bucks this year than we typically do. Some of our neighboring camps shot one or two less. So um, so for our camp individually, it was exceptional. For our neighborhood, um, it was right on par with what we typically have been shooting. And, um, you know, we've shot um, deer that were eight-and-a-half years old, bucks, cement manuli aged. Um, our neighbor shot a deer last year. That, that was nine and a half years old, um, a buck. So we, because of the cooperative nature of it and um, sharing information and uh, the relationships developed, you know, across property lines, um, even though what we get to do is not the norm everywhere, um, it is the norm for, for us in our neighborhood, you know, because of all the cooperation among the landowners. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. It's been exciting to see this whole co-op idea spread across the country like you said there's a lot of that happening here in michigan which has been nice to see and it seems like at least anecdotally from everything i hear from people involved in those and i've been loosely involved with some um it it definitely seems to make a real meaningful impact i mean are you seeing that from a high national level when you're looking across the you know the qdma membership and different co-ops is it is it really making as big of a difference as it seems to be just what i'm seeing locally Oh, absolutely. And, and we're a perfect example of it. You know, we are extremely lucky to have the acreage that we do. Um, you know, that's much larger than the many hunters are able to have. And if it was just us going at it alone, you know, we wouldn't have anywhere near the opportunities that we have today, you know, because of the cooperative nature. So, you know, as you start looking at smaller properties, those cooperatives become even more important. You know, and we have some neighbors that have small acreages. You know, we have some neighbors that, that have, you know, more acres than us. But uh, it works because of all of the, the folks, you know, getting together and doing this. And so um, we are very fortunate. I see the same thing happening in other parts of Pennsylvania because people involved with cooperatives. And, uh, you know, I'm very lucky to get to work around the country. So I see the same thing happening, you know, northeast, the southeast, the Midwest, the upper Midwest. You know, there's no boundaries to where a cooperative will work well or not. It truly can work any place that whitetails live. It's just a matter of, uh, you know, the hunters and the landowners uh, getting together with their neighbors and, you know, talking it through and, you know, having handshake deals and starting to develop a little bit of a friendship or a relationship, which then greatly compounds into the deer hunting end and what they're able to do. So the neat thing about it is, too, is, you know, they often start small and they start slow, and uh, which is fine. You know, even two people working together can, can start to make a difference. And then over time, you get another neighbor will throw their 20 acres in and, Another guy just down the road a little bit will throw his or her 40 acres in, and, you know, suddenly, man, you made, you made some friends that you never had before. You know, your deer hunting's better, and uh, it's, a, it's a whole new ball game. And, you know, you guys lead the north, uh, Michigan, with regard to co-ops. Uh, Texas, 
is the leads the South, and, and and they've been just doing those so much longer than everybody else. And you know, people think of Texas as these big land ownership patterns, you know, and kind of they go out by themselves. But that's not true at all. You know, they've had co-ops there a long time. They call them associations rather than co-ops, but it's exactly the same thing. So that's how, even with some of these larger uh, properties they have there, they're able to be so successful. Um, you guys lead the north with that, and uh, there's many other states trying to, to catch up to you, and I think that's a very good thing. Yeah. You know, QDM cooperatives are definitely one of the hottest things going right now, and, and I think a very, very bright sign for the future of hunting. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. Um, and speaking of, you know, I think most people listening – know who you are, Kip, and they're familiar with the Quality Deer Management Association with whom you work for. Um, but I guess just in case, just in case there's some people that aren't familiar, can you just give us a very, you know, a quick rundown of what the QDMA is all about and, and maybe what, what you guys are doing now today? I mean, has the QDMA, have your goals or your focus areas or the way you go about things, has that changed at all? Is QDMA in 2017 different than maybe the QDMA we knew five years ago or anything like that? I'm sure. Uh, I'm, I'm a, a wildlife biologist and the director of communication, or I'm sorry, the director of education and outreach for QDMA. QDMA is a national nonprofit wildlife conservation organization, uh, and we specialize in, in information and, and outreach to, to hunters and landowners and, and natural resource professionals. You know, we have this information that we want to share with people to help them be better stewards of our natural resources and, and have more successful hunting seasons. So uh, that, that's kind of it in a nutshell. So if, if you're a deer hunter, uh, you belong with QDMA. You know, we, we are the organization. We want you here to be able to, to give you more information, to make it better for you, and, and have you share that with others. Yeah. So, and as far as are we, are we different, um, we certainly are an education-based organization. Um, so that part hasn't changed. But some of our focus has, in large part because many of our early goals uh, we've accomplished. And uh, QDMA was founded in 1988. And at that point, the whole QDM philosophy was brand new. And, uh, and our founder actually married um, some principals from Texas with uh, some association from Australia, some work that he had done to really put deer hunters together. Because up to that point, you know, a lot of uh, wildlife professionals said, you can get duck hunters together and you can get small game hunters together on some, you know, or turkey hunters, but you can never get deer hunters to agree on anything. Well, Joe found uh, a way to make that happen. Uh, so Joe Hamilton founded the QDMA, and then at that time, you know, even a lot of wildlife professionals did not believe in uh, the QDM philosophy, did not believe in protecting young bucks or harvesting antlerless deer. They couldn't convince hunters to do that. So we spent much of the early years just proving that, hey, you know what, QDM works, and you can get deer hunters to work together. So you can fast forward to 1999. That's the first year in the U.S. that hunters shot more antlerless deer than, than bucks. So that was a monumental step forward with regard to deer management and, you know, and being good stewards. Then you fast forward a little farther, and suddenly now, well, you know what, we're protecting more yearling bucks. We're, we're getting more bucks into the older age classes. We have more balanced age structures. And, uh, and two years ago, we actually harvested more bucks that were three and a half or older than those that were just one and a half. So, I mean, that is absolutely amazing today. And it, it happened again uh, this past hunting season. So, you know, we've been monitoring this since 1989. And in 1989, about 69% of all the bucks shot were just one and a half years old. First set of antlers, you know, seven out of ten bucks. And if you fast forward today, it's about a third. You know, it's dropped all the way down to 33 or 34%. 
and a bigger percentage, 35%, are three and a half or older. So, and actually, so last past season, for the first time ever, hunters shot more bucks that were three and a half or older than those bucks that were just one and a half, or even those bucks that were just two and a half. So this is very remarkable because there's a lot of states that have restrictions to protect yearling bucks, 23 states to be exact. But there's many other states that have, you know, very active public education programs, you know, to encourage people to pass younger bucks. So what that means is, okay, we're passing yearlings, you know, and, and even five or ten years ago, a lot of people then just shot them at two and a half years old. Well, what we see now is, you know, they're making it to at least three and a half at record numbers. And there's not a single state in the country that has regulations designed to protect bucks that are two and a half. So what that means is the hunters are willingly passing an entire another age class of deer that they could legally kill just because they have seen benefits of hunting older bucks, you know, photographing older bucks, swapping tactics with, it, with these older deer. So it's a very different place in deer management, and, uh, and it's a pretty exciting one to be. And, and hunters have really shown their desire to want these older deer and their willingness to pass legally harvestable deer to be able to get to that so that's a pretty cool place we're at now so because of that our focus changes a little bit to providing new information on this change in game of deer management as well as rather than trying to prove that qdm works because everybody knows that now make sure that we are broad enough in our educational uh, outreach to bring in more hunters that that may not know about us or uh, you know may not be landowners and, and that's fine. Um, you know, some people think that QDMA is just a landowner organization, and that's not true at all. A, a full third of our members don't own any land. So we need to make sure that we do a good point telling deer hunters, hey, if you're a deer hunter, we want you with us, and we have information that can help you to make sure that nobody feels excluded from, from our organization. Yeah, yeah. So speaking of the information that you provide, every year for I don't know how many years it's been now, it's been quite a few, you guys have been putting together something you call the Whitetail Report. And um, the last two years now, we've had you on the show to tell us about that year's Whitetail Report and kind of what the state of the Whitetail is in the country. And that's kind of what my hope was for us to do today, was get that high-level overview of where are things right now, what are some of the current issues and trends. Um, But I guess before we dive into that, Kip, can you just provide us some context as to how you and, and Matt and the team put together the Whitetail Report. How do you, how does this all come together? Sure. We started doing this in 2009. That was the first one. And uh, the idea came from, hey, you know, we have all this information that we can get to our members and we're sharing with folks, but there's a lot more here that, you know, that media and others would love to have access to that we really had an opportunity, unlike most other uh, organizations, to, to be able to disperse this information. So uh, we started with that. And uh, the cool thing about it is every fall, late summer, early fall, we do a a survey to every single state wildlife agency and every provincial wildlife agency um, to provide information for the upcoming year's report. And it always includes information on the previous year's harvest. So we take a look at total numbers of bucks and antlers deer harvested, uh, break it out into age structure of that, um, break it so then we can take that and put all of it into a you know a harvest per square mile. So we can really compare you know state by state or province by province with what's going on. Um, we look at all of that by weapon type to see you know who's shooting more deer with bows versus muzzleloaders versus rifles. Um, and then we also ask questions on the most pertinent things that are going on in, in the deer world right now. So kind of the biggest issues, the biggest threats, the biggest opportunities out there. So 
we break our report really into, into three chapters. The first part is the harvest from the year before. So state by state and province by province uh, statistics to look at. The next part is, you know, the current uh, trends and threats, what's really going on right now. And obviously it change each year, so we make sure that we're up to date with it. And it's really like providing a State of the Union address, you know, to deer hunters. Here, here's what the State of the Union of the whitetail world. And the last part of our report now is, is QDMA's annual report to, to discuss the different programs we have and, and share information with folks. So the nice thing about it is, you know, much of or all of Part 1 and, and much of Part 2 comes straight from our state wildlife agencies. And uh, when we started this, you know, the states provided the data and, okay, here we go. But what we found is since we've been doing it this long, you know, the state agencies, we receive lots of compliments from them because, you know, they receive a lot of the same questions from their constituents. So our, uh, our wildlife leaders use that to, to compare how their state is to others and, and to share information with people. And, and we strongly encourage them, hey, you know, if, if you have a question that you want to ask or see how your state compares, well, you know, let us know. We're glad to include that each year on, on our state and provincial agency survey. So it's a good relationship between us and, uh, and the state and provincial agencies, which is very nice. Hunters love it because then they can see how their state compares to others around them or within their region. And, and the whole idea is to just make it as helpful as possible to, to hunters and, and natural resource professionals. So speaking of your relationship with these state wildlife agencies, from the hunter standpoint, I feel like there's always this interesting dynamic between hunter hunters and that agency and the regulations um, that are put in place and all these different things. From your unique perspective, um, what is the state of our state wildlife agencies? Do you feel like, and I know this, <laughs> this requires a massive amount of generalization because there's so many out there, but you know, how, how are these state agencies doing when it comes to, you know, I guess managing relationships with hunters and recording and, and tracking all this data and these different regulations. I mean, I, this is an impossible question. I'm realizing it as I'm saying it, but, but from your angle, what are you seeing there? Are we, are we on the right path? Are there any things that concern you? Are there any things you're particularly excited about? Um, what are your thoughts there? Well, I think there's two big uh, trends going on within that, in that realm. And one of them is, our wildlife management programs have never been more political than they are right now, and, and that is not a good thing. That, that is not a good sign. Um, you know, when I started, and I've been a wildlife biologist for, for more than 20 years now. When I started, um, science carried a lot more weight in, in all of these discussions. And uh, it didn't necessarily carry the day every time, but it really carried a lot of weight. And, um, and that is increasingly becoming not the case today. Today, I have seen time after time and state after state, you know, where the science didn't carry any weight at all, you know, and decisions were entirely political, um, from season dates, you know, to, to season structure, to antlerless harvest recommendations, either increased or decreased from what the biologist wanted, you know, because of political uh, whims. So, so yeah, that, that is not good. That is not uh, a bright sign at all for our future. Um, the second half of that, and uh, another trend that I think is very positive, is hunters have never been as engaged with their agencies as they are today. And that is a really, really good thing. Historically, our, our state wildlife agencies gave us our, our hunting seasons and rules, and here it is, and, and hunters took it and, and lived with it. And, uh, and today, hunters, unlike at any other point, have much more involvement with season setting, uh, deer management plan, um, preparations, 
So, so that's good. You know, they get to talk with the agencies. The agencies are engaging hunters at record levels, and uh, and that just makes it that much better because historically, you know, hunters were a much bigger piece of the pie for our, our wildlife management programs. But uh, today, we are more urbanized than we've ever been, you know, in the history of the United States. So what that means is much more of our wildlife decisions are being made, you know, in the cities and in suburbia rather than rural America, you know, like we often think of from a hunting end. So there's just many more stakeholders involved in wildlife decision-making today. And that's because of that, as hunters, you know, we need to, to make sure that we are represented. So the fact that hunters are more engaged with the agencies is a very, very good thing. And, uh, you know, the, there are some agencies that do a much better job of that than others. And if you look at many of the issues today where states really need the help and support of hunters, the state wildlife agencies that have been engaging hunters for a longer period of time have much better public support and working relationships, and uh, and it's very evident. And, and so that's a good thing. You know, and hunter agencies, in my opinion, need to engage hunters at even higher levels to make sure that they do have that support moving forward because there's some pretty tricky issues out there that we're having to deal with today. Yeah. So back to the first point you made about the politicization of wildlife management, where does the where does that blame get placed? Is that people within these wildlife agencies are le- allowing themselves to be influenced by politicians, or is this like above their pay grade and the the politics are coming from above and they're being forced on the agencies saying, "Hey, no, I don't care what you're telling me to do. This is what we're going to do." Where, where is the where is the onus put there? It's the latter of what you just said. You know, it's from above the, the agencies, and so they're being told what to do, uh, what they can or cannot say. So, you know, in, in most cases, our agency's deer biologists, you know, they're as mad about what's happening, you know, as, as the average hunter is because they're being told either to stand down or the recommendations are not going to be followed. You know, they're going to be dictated from above, and in many cases not even just, you know, the executive director of the agencies above that. You know, coming to them from uh, the board of commissioners that oversees the agency, or uh, you know, somewhere along those lines. So, yeah, it's not uh, it's not our deer biologist by any means. So, what's the is there a solution there? I mean, do do hunters as a contingency have a, have enough influence to influence that next rung above? If if we were to start making a ruckus, is that something that is achievable, or is this uh, outside of our realm of influence? <laughs> No, I think it absolutely is, and that's really where a lot of this is coming from, Mark. Um, you'll see and it's often worse in states that historically have not engaged hunters at a very high level. Um, it's many hunters and groups that are just so dissatisfied or upset with their lack of opportunity to, to be engaged that have gone to their legislators, and, and that's what's driving a lot of this. So just as you know, they're driving it kind of in a bad way, you know, the majority of hunters who are, you know, very uh, good stewards of our resources and, you know, and upstanding individuals, you know, we can do the same thing and, and put that power back in our, our biologist's hands. And some cases, um, you know, it's, it truly is another, another industry, another faction out there, you know, that has a bigger lobbyist than, than the wildlife group. But for the most part, you know, there are, there are more hunters than almost any other uh, group out there. So, you know, if we work together, we certainly can, uh, can put that power back in our uh, trusted agency's hands and 
the really thing that's held it, holding it back is some of the agencies, you know, that have not had good relationships with hunters in the past um, really need to mend those, and most are. Most have done a very good job over the last five to ten years mending a lot of those relationships and trying to improve them. And uh, so we just need to see more of that. And uh, you know, I think the longer that we worked or more hunters work with their agency, the better that relationship comes, I think you'll see a return of some more of that science-based management, which mm-hmm. is very much needed. Yeah. So is it fair to say that pointing the finger and, and getting pissed at the wildlife agency most of the time isn't necessarily the, the best course of action for us hunters? Maybe more times it's how do we engage with them and uh, better understand where they're coming from and, and help out in that stamp, from that standpoint? Yeah, I'm I'm an optimistic person, so I always try to take that approach of hey, you know, even if we haven't got along well in the past, let, let's let's work together on this now, um, you know, because there's a lot of people out there who are not for hunting or you know or wildlife management. So as hunters, we and, and our agency managers, you know, really need to stand together on these. So uh, um, I encourage hunters, hey, you know, even if you don't have a good history with your local biologist or your agency, you know, continue to to try to to make that happen. You know, continue to be positive and be a productive part of the conversation. You know, too many times I've seen hunters, you know, who are upset with their agencies, who who then take every opportunity possible to kick them or degrade them. You know, and that doesn't help anything, because at anything that you do in life, and this is especially true with wildlife management, um, your view versus you know your agency's view, there still comes down to a relationship there on whether you know the people working for the agency like you as an individual or not. And if they dislike you, it really doesn't matter how good your ideas are. You're not all that likely to have them implemented. So, you know, I encourage people, hey, you know, it's good. Make friends with your biologist and your agency. And you don't have to agree on everything for sure. But, you know, at least let them know that, hey, you are here to help. You're not here to to make the problems any worse or to kick them. You know, that that doesn't serve anybody good in in the wildlife world. Yeah, it's amazing how much you see that kind of thing, especially, you know, with anything these days with social media, the um, the villainization of some of these agencies sometimes is is uh, I don't know it, it's it's interesting to see how people it's very easy to point fingers right and it's very easy to make assumptions about different organizations or agencies uh, motivations or reasons for doing things um, but it, oftentimes at least in my opinion. It doesn't seem to do a whole lot of good to just say these guys are evil and they're trying to ruin our hunting because of A, B, and C. Um, that doesn't seem to be too productive. More so, it's usually trying to, you know, like you said, work with them, listen to them, offer your suggestions, help out or engage in some type of way that's productive versus just screaming and pointing fingers. But that's, I guess, uh, kind of the way of the world these days, unfortunately. Um, now you're right. You know, and I'm, I'm privy to some closed-door meetings and some high-level meetings with some of these agencies and you know and I you know I've heard you know dear Bodgeson agents say man Kip you know we agree with you 100 percent or you know we would love to do this you know we're being told to do you know B rather than A or whatever the case may be you know and so publicly this is our agency stance well then a hunter will hear the stance and if it's against what they want they criticize them you know and I'll come look you know he or she this dear boss may think exactly like you you know take into account that you're coming at this from a hunting end, you know, particularly very emotional end, whereas our agency folks, yeah, they have to determine or look at, you know, the biological value of it, but they also have to deal with, you know, the social and the political value of, of managing deer. And, you know, sometimes that gets in the way of what, you know, they want to do or certainly in the way of what you want to do, but you know, uh, continue to try to work with them and be helpful at every opportunity, 
and that's just much more likely that uh, you'll end up with something productive in the end. Yeah, yeah, true. So so let's move on to the Whitetail State of the Union, like you mentioned. And, and at the beginning of your Whitetail report, as you mentioned earlier, you guys really focus on harvest numbers, harvest trends. Um, where do things stand today as far as what you guys were able to put together for this 2017 report? What are some of the, the big takeaways? Well, we're starting to see a return of, of the buck harvest in many states, which is a very good thing. You know, we had a sliding buck harvest for a few years in, in some regions, and, and for a long time uh, in the Midwest, we're starting to see a recovery of that in some places, which is very encouraging. Uh, the antlerless harvest uh, continues to decline. We're at uh, about a decade-long uh, decline now, almost 20% down from where we were. And, uh, and as soon as I say that, I know people are going to think, oh, God, this is bad. And, you know, this is one place where a lot of agencies get themselves in trouble because they just tell whether the harvest is up or down, and then hunters immediately think if it's up, things are good. If it's down, it's bad. Well, that's not necessarily the case, particularly from the antlerless end, because there are a lot of agencies that now whose deer numbers are much more in line with what our habitats can support, so they are removing some antlerless harvest opportunity because we don't need to shoot as many as we did. So if that you know, is the case, then a lower harvest in some states can be a very good thing. So you really have to take a look at your specific example to see is, hey, is this reduced antlerless harvest, is this good or bad for the future? So even though it is down, in many cases, that marks a very positive impact because deer herds are just in a better shape today or a better place than they were in the past. So can so, I jump in really fast here, Kip? Um, absolutely. So as you mentioned, a few over the past few years when we've had this kind of discussion, and a lot of there's been a lot of talk in the media over the last two three years about this decline in, in harvest, the decline in populations. There's a lot of concern, you know, what's going on. The whitetail herd all of a sudden is is you know possibly facing a crisis here, and so there are some that are looking at this as a crisis, and then there were some that were saying, well, maybe this is like a course correction. Maybe we were way above what was really healthy and in balance with what these ecosystems can handle. Maybe this is that balance we're, we're correcting back down to a point of balance. In, in hindsight now, now that we're looking back on it um, these past few years, from your perspective and, and the perspective of maybe, maybe you know agencies and, and whoever else you're privy to have these kind of conversations with, do you feel now looking back on this, was it a correction and we've reached a point of balance, or was it actually a crisis and we've just now stabilized? Which is it? No, I'm, I do not think there was a crisis at all. Um, I think that we were seeing a change for a number of different reasons. Um, you know, things impacting our deer herds, but I don't think what in most places anyway, we were not at crisis level. Um, I do firmly believe that the average deer herd today is much healthier uh, than it was a decade ago, both from a numbers perspective and an age structure perspective. Um, I think that we certainly have an issue today with, with uh, some of our fawn recruitment rates that continue to decline, something that we really need to keep an eye on. But overall, our age structures are much better today than the past. And a lot of deer herds are a lot closer to being where they should be relative to the habitat. So, so that's a very good thing as well. So I always encourage our agencies and anybody, you know, before you just start saying this year's harvest was up or down, talk about it relative, you know, to, to what you wanted. Because every agency should have a target doe harvest each year, and they should be able to calculate a target, target buck harvest. So they should talk about it relative to what they expected to happen or what they wanted to happen rather than just up or down. And I know that the news, uh, the media, you know, will report this was, you know, a little bit up or a lot up or, or whatever. But as hunters, we need to be smarter than that. We can't just look at up or down and think good or bad. We need to, you know, take the next step and say, okay, let's see, you know, 
is this down a good thing or is it a bad thing because everything is site specific so hunters can definitely be a little bit smarter from that end yeah so so it sounds like the decline in doe harvest was an intended um an intended result across some places but you mentioned that buck harvest was on the way back up um do we have any idea of why that might be the case? Why the, the recent trend down maybe has stopped now? Have there, been, have there been any changes that you think might be you know behind that? Yep, I think so. And, uh, and all of the, the harvest data in our 2017 report comes from the 2015 into 16 deer season. And the reason for that is we, we publish a report in January of, of each year. So we publish it before you know, the existing deer season is, is done. Um, you know, there's seasons that run through January and even into February in some states. So all of the data that we talk about here, you know, is from the 2015 into 16 season because it's the, the most recent season where you have complete data that you can analyze. And I think from that, what we, why we had that buck harvest increase, um, agencies, you know, were monitoring and seeing that the buck harvest was declining. Um, we had a couple really bad hemorrhagic disease years within the last decade. So that by agencies taking a look at that and accounting for it, they have manipulated some of the antlerless harvest um, moving forward, such that if they were in an area where, you know what, we really do need to save some deer, they've uh, made changes such that they could protect more antlerless deer and allow some of those deer herds to recover a little bit. So I think there was a, you know, a few factors like that that led into it, and almost all of them intentional by our agencies you know, to, to help correct that buck harvest decline. So and we're starting to see... Uh, See that recovery and the really cool thing about it is it's the buck harvest total yeah, is all antler bucks so we have a recovery in antler bucks but then also record numbers of them that are three and a half or older so it's not like we have a recovery and but they're all one and a half you know we have very very good age structure and an increased harvest you know so that's a tremendous win-win for hunters yeah so here's something that i've heard some people talk about kind of anecdotally and I'm curious to see if you've heard of anything like this on a larger scale. Um, you know, in the years of like 2000, like 2012 and 2013, there were there was a lot of EHD outbreaks across certain areas of the country, particularly some spots in the Midwest. And you know, when that happened, there was large scale die-offs in local areas of a lot of bucks. Um, and the the thought, though, I think a lot of people had was, okay, so there's been a significant reduction in some of these older age class bucks. But for the bucks that did survive. Because of reduced competition for food, they are going to be much more likely to be able to have a, a lot of access to great nutrition and a better chance of, of reaching older age classes and being more healthy, you know, possibly reach their full genetic potential from a whole bunch of different standpoints, including potentially antler size, different things like that. Um, have you heard of anything on a larger scale? Is that something we're sort of seeing as we get into this 2015 and 16 season? We're seeing some of these deer that are now four years old um, or something like that that have lived in that post-EHD outbreak world where they have better access to habitat and now we're getting a, a healthier, um, more genetically reaching their potential deer herd? Well, that certainly can play a factor if, you know, the number of deer that died in an area were, were large enough that it the remaining deer had a big jump in the amount of nutrition that's left. So, so did did that happen? You know, I don't know. It probably did in some areas. Um, that certainly can happen through you know the HD die off or just good deer herd management. Um, I would guess that that certainly played a, a role in that. Um, is it the major role? Um, I think there's a lot of other habitat work and herd management work going on right now. You know, to help 
make sure that deer get abundant, uh, high-quality nutrition. So I think that probably had a bigger role in it, but the fact that there were fewer deer um, certainly plays right into the herd management part of it, Mark. So I think they probably went hand-in-hand hand uh, with what you were asking and, and certainly allowed for more food for those bucks and the remaining does and remaining fawns. So uh, that's just if everybody can get a little more to eat, and particularly a little more high-quality food, uh, that's just good all across that deer herd. Yeah. So you mentioned fawn recruitment and that that's not trending in the right direction. Um, wh- what are you seeing there? What's the latest there, and, and why is this still happening? And what's that mean? I don't know if everybody understands why fawn recruitment rates are important and what that means for the long-term future of a deer herd. We, we monitor fawn recruitment rates very closely because that is one of the best measures of, uh, of productivity of a deer herd. And, and what the fawn recruitment rate is, uh, it's not the number of um, fetuses inside a, a pregnant doe or it's not the number of fawns that hit the ground in the spring or early summer. It's the number that are alive day one of your deer season in the fall. So it takes into account, you know, the number that are born in the spring, but then we see how many of them make it to be about six months of age, you know, and are alive in the fall. And from a hunter's perspective, that's what's most important because that's a measure of, you know, the health of the deer herd from a reproductive standpoint and, you know, how good is uh, the habitat you know, to provide good fawning cover, et cetera, and food for the doe to feed that fawn to allow it to not just be a day or two old, but to be six months old, you know, and enter the fall population. Well, uh, if, you, if you back up a, a couple of decades, you know, it was pretty close to one fawn per doe. And, uh, and, you know, and people think, man, does have twins, so, you know, there's a lot of fawns. Well, in reality, you know, across the U.S., the average recruitment rate, you know, was just under one fawn per doe if you back up about 20 years. And that's because, you know, fawns get eaten by bears and coyotes and bobcats and they get hit by cars and, you know, they drown and they die and there's lots of things that kill them. So if you start with just under one fawn per doe 20 years ago, if you fast forward to now, it's down to like 0.59 fawns per doe. So what that means is for every doe out there in the fall, you know, there's just over half a fawn. So... That's not very good, and it's certainly a lot less than it has in the past. And that's the thing to really to watch is, you know, what is this trend doing over the last decade or last two decades? And uh, it's almost in a free fall in some places. And obviously the number of falls being recruited is a direct result of, you know, how healthy are those deer, you know, are those does getting enough good food to feed them, and how good is the habitat to protect them from, you know, dying either of malnutrition or, or predators or whatever. So as hunters... And managers, we want very productive deer herds. And the most, or the way to have the most bucks in an area is to have the most fawns born and then survive to fall. Because approximately every other fawn born is a buck fawn. So to have most bucks is to have the most fawns be recruited into the deer herd. Because then the next year they have their first set of antlers. So it's a very different situation if you're recruiting about one fawn per doe versus if you're recruiting you know, 0.6 fawns per doe. That's very, very different. So it means a lot less bucks being introduced into those deer herds. Um, it means a lot less antlerless deer that the average hunter can shoot, so it's less meat for the table. So, you know, and some people point the finger right at predators, and in some cases predators are having a big impact, uh, particularly in the southeast, but, but that's not everywhere. You know, there's places where there are very few predators. You know, we still have decline in recruitment rates. So, so there's definitely something going on with it that as hunters we need to, to really keep a close eye on. So if not predators, what are the other what are some of the other things that could be behind this? 
it can be just a lack of good habitat. So, uh, and if there's not good enough habitat, that means those does aren't as nourished, which means they don't provide as much milk for the fawns. Um, some people think that if a doe doesn't have a, a, a really good diet, that her milk is lower quality, and, and that is not true. You know, a doe that's starving will still have very high-quality milk, but what happens is she just doesn't have very much milk to feed her fawns. So because of that, you know, they don't grow the way they should. You know, they're, they're malnourished, they're weak. So you see fawns dying that way. You see, you know, just above-average um, mortality rates for those fawns. Um, which is which is obviously not good at all, and it's just a red flag for that whole management program. You know, if, if fawns are are dying at a high rate like that, then you know that's obviously not a good sign for those adults either. The adult those aren't healthy, which then means the bucks aren't all that healthy. They're not able to express their you know their body growth or or antler growth potential, and so that's not good for any of us. No. So on this habitat front, would it be correct to assume? And I don't know, this probably, there probably is no way to really know this because it's over such a huge area. Um, but I would make an assumption, or my, my guess would be that over recent years, you know, over the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years, as more and more people have gotten, have become focused on managing for deer and focusing on improving habitat for deer and different things like that, on average, my assumption would be that private land habitat quality for deer has likely increased. If you were to, you know, look at at a large scale level, there's probably been an increase in, in habitat quality for deer because of that interest in deer and that focus in education. Um, I guess, number one, do you think that's a safe assumption? And then number two, if that is an assumption we can safely make, if we think that private land habitat is improving on a larger area of land being managed for deer now where is the habitat degradation happening then is it because more and more private land is being taken out of you know natural growth and being put into monoculture agriculture just big cornfields and bean fields or is it something else entirely well for the first part i think absolutely yes i think the average uh, landowner today who who's interested in hunting his or her land is, is they understand far more about improving it for habitat, and there's more habitat management going on than, than I would say probably ever before in the name of deer, um, which is really good because then there's a lot of other species that benefit from that. Um, so I think some of the habitat degradation issues we're facing, one of it is certainly conversion of, of uh, wildlife habitat to cropland, uh, particularly row crops. Um, you know, we lost a full quarter of our CRP land you know, during the last decade, you know, a full 25% of it gone. And that's the most successful wildlife habitat program, you know, from, from our federal government that has ever been implemented. And uh, with increased uh, row crop prices um, a few years ago, yeah, we lost you know, millions and millions of acres. So I think that is a big part of it. And that particularly hurt uh, the Midwest region. Um, the northeast and the southeast, yes, we, it hurts us to lose that. But we have a lot of cover anyway. But in much of the Midwest, you know, the limiting habitat component was cover, and now you're removing millions and millions of acres of the most limiting habitat component, so that really hurts those deer herds. So that is part of it. Um, but also part of it is you have a lot of landowners who either are not hunters or um, are just not that interested in that part of it that we have forested habitat that is just maturing. And a mature forest just doesn't provide all that much for deer. You know, with the exception of wintering areas uh, in, in the north where they have to have that thermal cover and protection. 
um, you know, these old, these old overgrown hardwood forests, you know, all through Appalachia and throughout much of the Whitetails Range. Uh, young forest, very good for deer. Mature forest, you know, not so much. They just don't support that many deer. If you take a look at percentage of forest in the U.S., you know, we're, we're about where we were a few decades ago. So we're really not losing forest, but what we are losing at a very quick amount are those young forests. Those young forests that provide the most food and cover for deer, they're just simply mature. And mature forests just can't support as many deer as younger ones can. So is there anything being done um, from a state level or a national level to try to incentivize some type of forest management that might be able to help us reset that? I mean, or anything other than that that's being done to try to address that issue of these maturing forests across the country and what that means for wildlife? Yeah, there is. Uh, there's a lot of initiatives and incentives from the states, and actually um, QDMA has a new employee, uh, a young forest specialist, that's working for us in New York that, uh, that his job every day, you know, he talks with and meets with private landowners to, to teach them the benefits of having young forests on their property from a wildlife end, and, uh, and his job is to, to, talk, or to convert older forests to younger forests in the name of wildlife habitat. So that's through a grant from, uh, from the NRCS, um, program. So there are similar initiatives like that in other states as well. So there's actually a big push all through New England and New York right now along those lines because, you know, we're losing grouse uh, like crazy because same thing, forests are maturing and they really need those young forests too. So, um, and there's a lot of songbirds and, and other uh, interior forest species, you know, that need that type of habitat. And we're just losing that at such a fast rate that we are seeing some states and federal programs to try to, to increase the amount of that. And uh, so certainly from QDMA's end, we recognize it from, from deer hunters, you know, the, the value of those young forests. And uh, so we're very excited to have that guy there to be able to work with private landowners to do that. Um, all QDMA staff encourages landowners to do it as well, but uh, it's pretty cool that we have a guy on the ground actually meeting with landowners every day to actually make that a reality. Yeah, yeah, very true. That, that is very cool. Now, it... it it's also important to have diversity in the age of habitat as well, right? Because, correct me if I'm wrong, but my assumption is that it's really important to have young forest, but we don't want to have no old-growth forest either, right, for other wildlife species and other just the balance of an ecosystem. I mean, there, there's value to all the above. It's just a matter of making sure you don't have all of just one. Is that correct? That is correct. That is absolutely correct. Uh, diversity is key. And right now, we just have way too much of the older stuff and way too little of the young forest. So, yeah, you, we don't want to have all young forest, but uh, we want a good uh, range of age classes and making sure that we have an ample amount in that young forest. And uh, so, so that's the intent of that program. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Now, to the other piece of habitat, um, you mentioned the CRP issue out in the Midwest. Um, you mentioned over the last decade, we've lost millions and millions of acres. Um, where do we stand? Where do we stand right now with um, with the CRP program, with the next farm bill, and what's being proposed, or anything like that? Um, are we in a state where we think it's going to only get worse, or are things changing? What's the future look like for CRP and cover programs like that across the Midwest and the country? Well, I don't know what the, the discussions are within the farm bill to, to where that next step is going to go with that. But, uh, but I do know that, you know, all that land that we lost was due to those higher commodity prices. So people think, well, okay, now, you know, corn and beans, the price have dropped like crazy. Can't we just put that land back into CRP? But, but it's not that easy because, you know, you look at many of those agricultural producers, when they greatly ramp up their production, 
um, and then put those acres back into row crops, that often comes with additional equipment, you know, tractors, drills, plows, this, combines, etc. So when it's all of a sudden commodity prices are down, those farmers can't just stop crop farming that. You know, they're, they're caught in that. You know, they have <laughs> to pay for that equipment. So in many cases, they continue to, to farm those acres, you know, to just be able to help make or at least hopefully make payments for all that equipment. So it's not nearly as easy as, okay, let's just put it back into some good wildlife habitat. So we get caught with that, and that's not, you know, not a good place at all. Um, I'm not sure what the next farm bill will be or how that will help from a wildlife habitat in. I think we're very lucky with our new administration in, in uh, Washington, D.C. is very pro-conservation-minded. Um, that is very good from our end, but uh, we'll see what happens uh, for wildlife habitat and uh, at least with our federal programs. Interesting. Uh, in, in what ways do you think our, our new administration is pro-conservation from that standpoint? Is there anything specific you, you're referencing there? Well, at least... Uh, um, throughout the campaign, uh, he talked about you know his, his conservation views. Um, I know he comes, or at least his sons uh, are hunters, which is a very good thing. Um, there has been talk with, with much of the conservation community leading up to the election on uh, promises or campaign promises and ideas of what he would like to see. So uh, um, I think that we're in a much better spot from that end, you know, who our leader is in, in, in Washington than we've been in, in quite some time. Um, certainly more pro-conservation um, than we've seen recently. So I'm really hopeful for from that end of it that this can be good for our wildlife management and, and wildlife habitat efforts. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to be interested to see what happens too. I, I, hope, uh, I hope that those things are true because we certainly, we certainly need, we need that support from the top all the way down to the bottom. So back to the harvest stuff. Um, you mentioned that the data you were referencing was 15 and 16 data, but I do know that some 2016 hunting season stuff has been rolling in. What have you seen from the states that have reported on 2016 data so far? From what I've seen, and I try to keep up with that as well, um, you know, it makes a lot of headlines. Um, what we saw was a lot of what we have heard about thus far from 2016 was very similar to 15. Um, some of them have been down, but literally a percentage point or two. Um, some have been up, you know, within 5% of what they were last year. So uh, um, some of the big states, uh, like Pennsylvania, um, hasn't reported theirs yet, and they typically don't have all those numbers for another month or so, or at least they don't make them available. So uh, I don't know exactly what will happen, but I would guess the 2016 buck harvest, I'm sorry, the 2016 into 17 buck harvest will likely be very close uh, to what we saw uh, a year before that. So. So I'm hopeful anyway. I'd like to see it continue to creep up and, uh, and edge back in, in a positive direction. Um, but we don't want to see a huge increase in it. It's much better to have that thing move slowly, up or down. So uh, now that we have the corner turned and it's headed up slowly, it would be nice to see it stay pretty consistent or maybe bump up a percentage point or two as we go. Um, that, that's a very stable you know, and a very good thing for, uh, for our hunting. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Was there anything else from a harvest standpoint uh, that stood out to you that was unique? I mean, I, I know you mentioned that the age structure continues to, we continue to be at near record levels for three and a half year old or older. Um, was there anything when it came to, you know, harvest split out by weapon or antlerless harvest or any of the other things that you guys took note of there of interest? 
Yeah, I think the one uh, thing, um, certainly the age structure is the biggest, but the next thing that is really interesting to me is if you take a look at the harvest by weapon type, and uh, we break this out, we monitor this each year as well, and firearms still take about two-thirds of the deer harvest, you know, a rifle or a shotgun. And, uh, and what we saw in 2015 was firearms were right at 66% of the entire harvest. However, from the bow end, um, bow was 22%, and so it's, you know, between a fifth and a quarter. But there were some states that reported the crossbow harvest kind of in the, the other category. So some states combined bow and crossbow, some separated. But if you look at whether it's bow, vertical bow or crossbow, you know, bows are taken getting pretty close to a quarter of the harvest, and that's really bumped up. Fifteen years ago, the bow harvest was only 15% of all the harvest. And now we're pushing that 24, 25, I think. So uh, what we're seeing is the bow having a much bigger impact on total deer harvest. And I think that's for a couple of reasons. One, uh, as I said earlier, we're more urbanized than ever before. There's just a lot more bow hunting opportunities today. You know, in places where we have firearm restrictions, you just can't use uh, guns, and, or even muzzleloaders in some cases, you know, inside places today or inside these limits of, of cities or towns where, you know, a few years ago it was open and we could hunt with them. So I think bows have more of an opportunity. Obviously the big crossbow push over the last uh, five or six years has brought new people into the sport and archery hunters that are switching over to crossbows and in some cases being a little more effective. So I think we're seeing more of that as the reason for that. And what my prediction is, is that we're going to continue to see that bump up as we go forward because it's not like we're going to get any less urbanized. And uh, as more people get into that, we have longer archery seasons. We have more archery opportunity. We have a lot of recruitment programs begging people, you know, to get in and try those. So, so I, and I see that as a good thing. So I think we'll continue to see that bow bump up. And one thing that we do monitor is, you know, what state, harvest a higher percentage of their deer with bow than anybody else. And year in and year out, that's always New Jersey. New Jersey was the only state that harvested over half of their deer with a bow. Well, last year for the first time, now we have two states that have harvested at least half of their deer with a bow. Connecticut has been added to that. And uh, so uh, I think that's a trend that we're going to see continue, and just more states are going to take up more of their deer with a bow moving forward particularly states that tend to be uh, more urbanized or have higher uh, human densities. And and we're assuming this is because there's just less area that is available to hunt with a firearm in those states or those areas, and there's way more areas that are, you know, bow only, probably because of that very urban type setting? Uh, that's certainly a big reason in it. New Jersey is the most urbanized uh, state in the country. I'm sorry, the, the most densely populated state in the country. So uh, that plays into a lot. Um, I don't think that's the only reason, you know, but I think that that is probably the biggest reason. And I also think that's why the two states that have taken more than half of their deer with a bow, you know, are states that are high, you know, urban uh, populations and just not big rural areas. So, uh, I, and I bet you'll see that continue. Yeah. So, so speaking of urban deer or urban areas and deer hunting in urban areas, um, kind of shifting gears here to some of the more issue and advocate, well, issue focused things. I know part two of your whitetail report is, is focused on that. I don't remember if I saw anything in the report about this specifically. Um, but just from, you know, following the news over the last year or so, there's been a lot of controversy around urban deer management. There's been tons and tons of protests around hunts being allowed in some urban centers or 
sharpshooters being hired to kill deer in certain areas or even in some areas hiring organizations to go and sterilize deer. Um, can you give us a, a high-level idea of, of what's been going on from that standpoint and, and what you think or what the QDMA thinks about these trends that we're seeing in urban deer management? Yeah, you're right. We're seeing more of that um, in large part because of our urbanized nature. You know, we just have more deer that are in areas now that cannot be hunted. And, uh, and deer do very well in suburbia, as you're well aware. They, uh, you know, they do real good in our backyards and eat in our gardens and then that kind of stuff. So I think it's a problem that's just going to continue to increase. We have agencies working like crazy on that in different states trying to address it. But, um, but nobody's, you know, certainly have not been able to solve the problem yet. And part of it is once you get into those areas, the game is so different from, you know, our, our recreational hunting or our, our sport hunting, as people often say. You know, there's so many different views, first of all, on what you can kill a deer with, even if, if that is the, the path that, that the community wants to take. But even before, you know, to get to that point, there are so many meetings and, and uh, red tape often that you end up having to cross just to decide what to do with them. You know, are we going to kill them or are we not? You know, and then emotions run high, and as soon as you get all those emotions in those meetings, then it just takes forever to come to some type of conclusion on what to do because of that. And there's no doubt, unequivocally, the absolute best thing to do for those areas and for those deer are to, to remove some of them. You know, if you could hunt them, that's certainly the best and cheapest. If not, you need to kill them somehow. And, uh, but that's not always plausible, I guess, to, to the people involved. Um, so because of that, then you end up with things like the sterilization for some programs. They do it on bucks, some they do it on doe, and then it just turns into a nightmare. You know, extremely expensive. Um, none of those programs have been shown to be helpful long term, because even if you know if you sterilize those deer, it's not like you're starting with a population that's where it should be. You know, you're you're brought to the table because there's a huge problem with too many. So you need to address that number, and you know, it's not a once-and-done thing. You need to address that number on an annual basis. And uh, most of those urban situations like that, whether it's, you know, at Cornell University where they're uh, sterilizing deer or Ann Arbor or, you know, pick a city anymore, it's, it's in the news all the time. They are extremely expensive and, in the end, mostly ineffective. Do we, do we risk uh, – here's what I'm thinking. When you're seeing this option – of sterilization being put on the table more and more often in these states or cities, like you mentioned, and on Long Island they're doing it now. In Ann Arbor, I think they're talking about doing it. Or they are doing it in Ann Arbor. Um, as this is being proposed and being accepted in more places, do we risk the do we risk precedent being set? Are we actually seeing in each of these little debates in these communities? the the value of hunting as a means for management is that up for is that up for judgment in a little tiny way in each one of these situations because when you're going in there and they're they're debating the the merits of a hunter harvest versus a controlled sharpshooter harvest versus a sterilization program as the means to manage deer populations if the precedent starts being set that in these communities that sterilization is the way to go and that people say okay we're doing this they're going to say it works maybe um do we risk that continuing to spread and spread and spread and someday 20 30 years from now people are saying well hey we've been we've been proving sterilization can work in these areas you know on this scale we don't need hunters anymore is that something that you know even though it's way way down the road do we need to be worried about that and as hunters be more active in trying to 
fight that misconception now early while we still can? Well, I don't think that's going to replace hunting um, moving forward. And, and the reason for that is, uh, at least yet, nobody has been effective at solving the problem uh, with these other means. And it has just been extremely, extremely expensive, you know, far more expensive than, than to ever solve it with, with hunters. So because of that, you know, I think that only happens in these areas because you often end up with very influential people who have the means to, to, to pay for these, essentially, you know, to allow it to happen. You know, if it was the average citizen um, or blue-collar worker, um, there's no way they could ever pay for this to happen. So um, because of that, um, I, I don't see it as a big threat to the future of hunting. Um, I don't think it's a good thing in these areas. You know, every time you open up another opportunity, I guess there is the potential for what you're saying. Um, but uh, the long term, um, that, that, that doesn't scare me um, nearly as much as some of the disease issues do out there for, for our future. So let's talk about that, disease issues. What's, uh, you know, as we mentioned earlier, there were some big EHD scares a few years ago. It doesn't seem like that has been quite as severe the, la- the past few years. Um, but CWD continues to pop up. Can you give us a quick primer on what's happened recently with both of those? And then maybe we can, I'd, I'd be interested in diving deeper onto the CWD front, but uh, maybe start with a quick overview of what's the latest on EHD. Sure. Uh, hemorrhagic disease, uh, um, luckily in 2016, was not a bad year again in most of the U.S. A um, couple places, it was pretty severe, though. West Virginia and Virginia had really bad outbreaks again. Um, the bigger issue, I think, with the hemorrhagic disease right now is we're starting to see new strains of the virus um, in the U.S. and moving northward at pretty rapid rates. Um, one of the neat things about hemorrhagic disease is deer can build an immunity to a specific strain of it. So that's why, you know, this used to be just considered a disease kind of the southeastern U.S. And uh, deer down there, yeah, a few got it every year. It was never all that bad because they saw it all the time. And then all of a sudden it started moving north. Now, whether that's climate change or something else, uh, it, it doesn't matter. It's definitely moving north. You know, so the first time our northern deer see it, they're, they're naive to it, and it kills a snot on them. Well, so that is continuing to happen here in the north every few years. But also, we're starting to see these new strains in the south that are killing the snot on some of our southern deer because they're naive to it. So it, uh, there's, a, there's a, a big concern by many today regarding hemorrhagic disease because of these new strains and some of the movement of it. So I think it's something we need to be very uh, carefully watching. Um, it's the most common disease of white-tailed deer. You know, it's been happening forever, but uh, we're certainly seeing some different trends in, in what's happening with it now, so something we really need to keep our eye on. You know, there's no cure, there's no vaccine, so there's nothing that we can do from that end other than adjust antlerless harvest as necessary. And, uh, and since, you know, it's dependent on the... the the vector, a little noceum that transfers it from one to another, it's not like an individual deer is passing it to another deer directly anyway. You know, certainly the vector can bite the deer and then take that to another deer and infect them. But from a management end, you know, we, we need to monitor it. There's not a really result of our actions that's impacting additional deer you know, because of it. So that makes it very different from CWD. And I think CWD is a much, much bigger threat partly because infected deer can give it to another deer and infect them, um, in large part because there's not a, a practical live animal test yet. So because of that, we move deer every single day that can unknowingly have the disease to, to, to new facilities and then to new states, which is, a, which is a terrible thing. And if you take a look across the U.S., 
it's hard to keep up with the expanding CWD map anymore. It seems like every day there's a new state or a new area within the state or a new township, and it's just it's a nightmare for hunters and for wildlife agencies. And uh, I think the battle just continues to get worse as wildlife agencies and, and the deer farmers argue over this. Um, we certainly are not in a better place now than we were five or ten years ago with it. And, uh, and I think that there's some, some pretty tough times ahead with regard to agency regulations, hunter desires, and uh, arguments across agencies um, with regard to, to what we're doing with captive deer versus free-ranging deer. But, but there's no doubt. I definitely see that as one of the biggest threats to the future of, uh, of our free-ranging deer and, and our hunting heritage. So, so you mentioned there's been a lot of news when it comes to new positives across the country. Do, do you have? Can you give us a handful of those new places where CWD has been found for the first time, or increasingly, um, where have we seen some some changes there? Sure. 2016 was big. From for the first time, we had it in uh, the southeast. It had never been in the southeastern state. Arkansas shows up in Arkansas, and they say, okay, we have one here. It must be something brand new. Well, they quickly started sampling and realized, oh, my gosh, this is way more widespread than we thought. So it literally went in Arkansas from being the first state in the southeast to confirm it, to thinking, yeah, this is a recent incident, to them realizing, you know what, this most likely has been here for at least a decade. So uh, that's, that's a big difference if the disease just shows up versus you had it for that long. Um, so that was very big. You end up with in Texas and, and captive deer. They had not seen it in captive facilities. They've confirmed it there now, which is huge. You end up with a new area in Pennsylvania, which is huge. And then in most places that had it, it continues to just expand. You end up with more research um, showing that the deer populations are now actually declining uh, because of the disease. Um, none of those are, are good for, for what you and I love to do, Mark. Yeah. So, well, can do you can you specify? Or excuse me, I can't talk. Can you elaborate on that study that came out of Wyoming? That I think that you were referring to there that spoke to some long term research that showed in these areas where there has been CWD for a long time, we're now seeing quantifiable long term reductions in deer population. Um, is that something you can speak to? Sure. Um, you know, that's one of the first places they identified it. And one of the things about CWD that the disease experts have been warning about is, hey, look, you know, this is not something that comes in for a year or two and, and you just see massive die-offs. It's something that just builds itself within the population, continues expanding and expanding to a point where all of a sudden now you start seeing these declines. You know, and there's no vaccine for CWD. There's no cure. You know, it's 100% fatal. So, that, you know, that's never good for deer. And what we're seeing for the first time now these long-term impacts of the disease being in that Wyoming herd where, you know, they're attributing you know, four, up to 14% uh, mortality annually just from the disease. You know, that's not including, you know, what gets hit with a car or shot with a rifle or whatever. So just think about it. In any state, you know, where you hunt or want to go hunting, if all of a sudden 14% of the deer this year are dead because of it, you know, 14% at least next year are dead because of it, Suddenly, hunting opportunities are becoming really reduced. And, uh, you know, Wisconsin's had it the longest in the East. And you can talk to people from Wisconsin, and we have, you know, QDMA that have told us, look, you know, I, I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. You know, this is just so bad in my area. You know, every deer we kill now or almost every deer has the disease. You know, we're not seeing older bucks anymore. It, uh, it's a sad thing. And if, actually, if you take a look at the national age structure data, uh, for the last two years, Wisconsin has led the country in uh, harvest of yearling bucks. 
You know, and you think of Wisconsin, everybody thinks of Buffalo County and these great big deer. Well, they're trending the other way. And actually, this past year, they harvested the lowest percentage of bucks that were three and a half or older than any state in the country. So wow. uh, that's not a good trend for what you want from uh, from a deer hunting end. No. So, so here, the thing about CWD, from what I see, is that there are these. There's a lot of conflicting information out there that I think the average deer hunter is seeing today that has got to be confusing because there seems to be a lot of science coming out and a lot of biologists who are who are emphasizing things that you have here that make a lot of sense. But then I feel like there's some arms of the media and there's some people that are going out and going and having seminars or publishing articles or writing online that are some, saying something very different. And they're saying that CWD is overblown, that it's some government conspiracy theory, or that's that wildlife agencies are overreacting tremendously and that the the issues we're seeing in Wisconsin with deer hunting harvest and, and satisfaction and everything, the reason why that's all bad now isn't because of CWD, it's because of the big bad agency that have overreacted and, and ruined deer hunting. Um, so you're seeing some of that kind of talk. Um, wh- what do you make of that, Kip? Is Is it why is this happening? Why are there some people that are saying this? And what do you think about what they're saying? Well, I, I think that there, there is tremendous confusion about it, in large part because there's just so much about CWD that, that we don't know. Um, you know, there's a fair amount that we do, but there's way more that we don't. So because of that, there's room to argue either side of the issue. Um, as a wildlife professional, I tend to be on the side of the vast majority of disease experts you know, and what they say, what they predict. So, uh, but there are certainly some, some wildlife managers uh, on the other side of it, in some cases because of personal gain by you know, other interests, uh, in some cases because you know, they may truly believe that uh, you know, the gray area of CWD is just not that big of a deal. Um, you can always play the odds, and, you know, and anybody who takes a look at what we do know about it, um, you know, it's not good. I think that we've seen a lot today published uh, in writing and on TV and in, in public uh, events, you know, that it really does a disservice to, to what we do know about the disease. And, um, and I think that's a very bad thing, and particularly some very influential people who are, who are tremendous educators, you know, that are respected and valued by deer hunters that I think, you know, they're, they're not telling them the whole story or, or they're telling them a skewed version of it. And uh, I don't think that's very good at all. No. Yeah, I, I felt the same way. So could, could you give us as best as possible – from what the most verified and um, reliable science and research has shown, what are a few of the things we can say that we do know about CWD and that we do know about proper reaction to it? Is there a handful of things that you can tell us that you know we can safely assume this is true and this we can at least stand by this? And yes, there's still lots of gray area, but this is what we do know. Sure, we know that, that it's 100% fatal to deer. Uh, we know that deer can pass uh, the infectious uh, materials that, that they have to other deer through urine or feces, um, saliva, blood, for, for other deer to, to pick up the disease and get it. Uh, we don't know exactly how much of that material has to be shared before another deer gets it, but we know that deer definitely can deposit those infectious materials in those bodily fluids for other deer to get. Um, we know for sure that once they get it, they're going to die but it may be a few months to a few years, uh, you know, and, and that's part of the problem was if they got it and died immediately, they'd be off the landscape and hopefully not spreading it to as many other deer. But the fact that they can look completely normal and 
shed those materials for months or years and let other deer get it is you know a real hindrance to to managing the deer herd so so we know those things for sure um some of the stuff that makes it difficult is as i just said they can have it for a while without showing symptoms um, there is not a, a practical live animal test to test for it, and that is probably the biggest hindrance. Um, there is a, a tonsil test uh, as well as a, a rectal uh, biopsy test that are both live animal tests. The problem with those is um, that you know they may work on deer, they don't work real well on elk, and the one that's being touted as the most useful right now, that rectal biopsy, um, does a pretty good job detecting it if a deer has had the disease for quite a while, uh, but in the early stages, it misses almost all of them. So, so it's not practical for use and certainly not a reliable test. Um, if we did have a reliable test, that would make it a lot better because it's, you know, it's crazy the number of, of captive deer that are moved um, every day. You know, that certainly, and, and it's not it's like people in the industry are bad. You know, they don't want to have CWD in their facility or spread it to another one either. But, you know, you, if you can unknowingly move these deer, that is, that's a big threat. You know, to 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 our free ranging deer. So, boy, if we could have a, a cat or a, a live animal test, that would help things a lot. So, so in addition to something like that, you know, improving testing and things, what types of reactionary measures do you think, or can we safely say, seem to be um, recommended or um, either necessarily? or excuse me, either necessary or recommended, I guess, as far as, okay, we, we have CWD somewhere or we're trying to prevent CWD from getting somewhere. What types of steps have we found to be effective in managing it um, or could be effective, I suppose? I think the one thing that is has shown to be good is when CWD shows up in a new area, um, testing a bunch of deer right in that immediate area so that our agencies can get a good feel for prevalence of the disease and, and likely how much it has spread already because once if, if you find it when it first arrives you have a chance to get rid of it um, so I do believe that when you find an area it is very good to test a bunch of deer right in that area exactly like you guys did in Michigan um, exactly like what they're doing in, in Minnesota right now um, once it has spread through an area um, there's nothing that we know of right now to eradicate it so I think once you have just determined, okay, this is not a new thing, it, it is here, it's spread, it is very good to know, like, okay, how far has it spread or what do we have here? But at that point, I think the game changes a little bit in that since we can't eradicate it, the worst thing we can do is alienate hunters and lose their support. And uh, the best way to do that is to say, hey, we're going to kill every deer here and, and be done with it. And, and obviously that doesn't work, and, and nobody wants to see that. Um, I think a perfect example of a good working relationship has occurred in Michigan when it showed up because the agency has done such a good job over the last decade or so of mending relationships with hunters and, and wanting to be good partners uh, with our QDMA branches, with all of these QDM co-ops. So uh, they, they trust the DNR there, or at least many of the deer biologists, or the people they work with. So it was a, a really nice thing to see how, okay, you have it here, Agency reaches out to these different groups. We need support. We need to test these deer. We need to do this. They did it very quickly, very efficiently, and it, and it has worked very well in where it is in your free-ranging deer herd. So because of that, I think that you have to have that working relationship. What does not work is if the agency just says, hey, this is what we're going to do, and you have no say in it. Because the reality is you know, most deer are on private land, and, and they can't just go onto private land to kill these deer. So 
They have to maintain that good relationship. In many cases, you know, hunters want some older bucks to be able to photograph and hunt and, and pursue. So if an agency says, we're going to get rid of all the deer or all the older bucks, well, then hunters don't want to hear that. and they, They're no longer part of the solution. So I think that once you find it's established, it's much better to keep hunters engaged so that they continue to harvest antlerless deer and so that they can keep with the program and keep being part of the solution. And if that takes a few older bucks out there to, to make sure that they want to continue, then I think that's a very good thing. It's much better to have those older bucks to keep hunters engaged, I think, than to try to remove all older bucks and lose support from all the hunters. Hmm. That makes sense, I think, to, to what we talked about earlier, that, that necessary collaboration between hunter and agency. Um, it makes sense that you need to keep that that relationship there by not alienate, alienating them with some of these um, possible regular management decisions while at the same time trying to make the proper management decisions um, for the long-term future. It's that balancing act that seems to be the challenge, um, but it makes a lot of sense. You, you alluded a little bit ago to some of the things related to the captive deer and possible transmission of CWD there. Is there anything new when it comes to what the research has shown as far as to what degree the captive deer industry or captive deer facilities have when it comes to transmitting CWD across state lines or from captive to wild deer? Is there anything new on that front? And then number two, is there anything new when it comes to how that is being regulated um, or managed? Well, um, I don't think there's anything new on the front of, of you know, the threat of captive deer and spreading the disease. Um, I'm in many cases, less concerned about them spreading it to wild deer right around the facility um, through the fence as I am about spreading it to wild deer around the facility through escapes from the facility, but even more apart from just movement from one facility to another, you know, by, by deer in a, in a trailer or in a truck. Um, if you take a look at how CWD is spread across the U.S., you know, there's no way that this has happened just by random movement of the disease. You know, it's been trucked and into most new places. And that's either being trucked by a live deer or by uh, a dead deer, just harvest, you know, the carcass and move it where you're not supposed to. And, you know, as hunters, we're our own worst enemies with that. You know, I know people who move deer illegally. You know, once they've, they've legally harvested a deer and then they end up bringing, you know, the eyes and the brain back with the skull or, you know, they don't clean it properly or whatever. And so I think the science is pretty clear that the most likely way that the disease can move is live deer, moving to a new facility, and, you know, probably the second easiest way to move it is, you know, by legal harvest of deer, but then moving parts that you're not supposed to, eyes, the brain, the spleen, you know, cervo or the backbone, that kind of thing. So uh, it, uh, certainly from the captive end, I think that, you know, if we could stop all the movement of live deer, we would help. And from the hunter end, you know, if we didn't do ourselves such harm and move stuff ourselves, we could help a bunch as well. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, on that latter end, that's one piece that I feel like a lot of people still don't know about. I, I just, when I'm just kind of sampling acquaintances and things, like, did you know that you can't, in, in many states, you can't, you know, shoot a deer, let's say, in Iowa, where there might be a CWD positive state, or any state like that, and then shoot that deer, throw it in the back of your truck, and bring it back into Michigan, um, that's illegal. Um, and I think a lot of people do that, not realizing it. Um, because these regulations aren't too terribly public. They're they're in the books or they're on the website, but I'm not sure a lot of people realize that in many cases, like like you mentioned, Kip, you need to, you know, you can bring the meat, 
you can bring the hide, you can bring the skull caps, you can bring the antlers with everything scraped off of it, but you can't just bring a whole head with a brain and all that other stuff in there. And that's one of those things I think needs to be more publicized and made known to hunters because I think a lot of people are doing this not intentionally, not intentionally trying to aid in the spread of disease, not intentionally trying to um, break the law, but just never would have thought that that's an issue and never would have known. Um, I mean... We even did some surveys of the NDA that I think that showed a few a year or two ago that that maybe some people didn't know that. I mean, are you seeing that Kip is something that probably needs to be um, more more publicized? Well, I, I, yes, the answer is yes. But I think a lot of it, the publicization or promotion of it, it needs to be you know among our own ranks. Um, every state wildlife agency that I'm aware of publishes that in the rules guide and, and they talk about it. Um, could they talk more? Sure, they could. But you know, but at least they are doing that. But you're right, man, the average hunter just does not, you know, understand at all either they haven't read it or think, well, that won't apply to me. Um, so, yes, I think as hunters we definitely need to talk to, you know, the other hunters in our camps and, uh, and that we hunt with and just let them know, you know, about this. Um, I think part of it is just hunters, in large part, you know, just don't, just don't care enough to think, oh, this is not going to matter to me or, or they see, you know, uh, somebody on TV saying CWD is not that bad, so they figure, ah, I'm not going to worry about it. Well, um, I think, you know, could agencies do more? They certainly could. But I think in, in large part that the, we need to put the onus on ourselves as hunters uh, to make sure that we're not negatively impacting our own future. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and what I was saying was to that latter point, I I think it, it's something that just within the hunting community hasn't been discussed enough. So uh, so I agree with you on that front. And and I guess hopefully we're going to inform a few people here today because um, because, yeah, it's something that just some surprise there's not a lot of people that realize it and it can be a hassle you know you shoot a deer and now you need to you know cape it out yourself or skin it out and deal with it or process it or now you need to go to a taxidermist in that state um but some of these things like you said they have bigger picture implications that while inconvenient make a difference and uh, we owe it to ourselves as hunters and to the future of this hunting lifestyle to to try to take every steps we can to to minimize that potential risk so that's, that's right. I agree 100%. So, Kip, we've talked about disease. We've talked a little bit about some of these habitat things. Um, looking forward, is there what are there any things that concern you or any major issues or upcoming things coming down the pipeline that, that we need to be aware of um, when it comes to the, the future of deer and deer hunting that we haven't talked about yet? I think one of the biggest things is we need to have a, a bigger discussion and, and on this whole disease thing. And the reason I say that is we started early in this conversation, so we'll bring us full circle here, you know, talking about the age structure of the harvest and how hunters have shown their willingness to pass deer to get them to that at least three-and-a-half-year-old age class. Well, as CWD continues to spread, some agencies take the tactic of, okay, we're not going to allow deer to get to these older age classes. We want the hunters to kill them young. In some cases, they have removed antler restrictions to, to return the harvest of yearling bucks. In some cases, they're advo- advo- you know, actively supporting hunters to, to kill younger bucks. Um, so I think that we are at a crossroads where you know, we have really good hunter agency uh, relationships in many cases, probably better than ever before. We have better age structure of bucks than we probably have had in at least the last 100 years. So we have a lot of happy hunters. Then all of a sudden, this back next uh, monkey wrench in this is, okay, it's spreading CWD. Some uh, agencies want younger bucks. So uh, 
with hunters finally getting to the point where they are and now being told, now we want to go the other way, it's going to take a really good working relationship to navigate through, I think, this next uh, tangled mess. And um, so some agencies have said, no, we're not going to try to drive buck ages younger. You know, we want the continued support of hunters and be part of this and harvest antlerless deer, um, but not all of them. Some have gone the other way. So I think that's the next big hurdle that we're going to have to get over and or not necessarily get over, but work our way through. And it's going to take, uh, you know, good relationships on both sides and a lot of trust on both sides, agencies and hunters, uh, to come out of this stronger at the other end. Uh, now, is it safe to say that you would not recommend that uh, that type of management decision based on what you said earlier about the importance of still trying to maintain some level of balanced age structure and, and the fact that that improves hunter satisfaction? Um, is that correct? Would you say that this idea to just really start targeting the year and a half old bucks to try to manage CWD maybe isn't the best idea? I think that when you first have CWD in an area, it is fine to target all deer, you know, bucks or does. And if you establish, hey, this is brand new, let's get rid of them. I think it's absolutely the right thing to hit bucks and does hard to try to keep it from ever spreading out of there. However, once you determine now we're pretty well established here, then I absolutely think that it's better to, to have some older deer out there to keep hunters engaged and actively hunting. Okay, yeah, that, that, that makes sense based on what you are saying earlier. Okay, so, so that's something that's concerning you. What's something that you're excited about when it comes to the future? I mean, what, what silver lining do we have? What, what kind of optimism do we have in store for the coming year or two or, or few? Well, I think one of the things is where we're starting to see, you know, a bunch of youth involved in, uh, in, in, in hunting, which is a good thing. You know, as we continue to have an aging hunter population, um, agencies have really stepped up to try to put in some new programs to get youth involved. And uh, so I see that as a very good thing because I think that the youth can correct a, a lot of problems. And uh, I gave the example early on, you know, in our hunting camp where, you know, it was really cool to have all those young kids there. Um, I think one of the things that as we start to get more youth involved, the youth numbers themselves are, are good for us. But I think at least an equally important thing is once those youth are involved, you end up with a lot of aging hunters becoming more engaged again as mentors. And, uh, and we saw some of that at, right at our hunting camp last year, and, and I've seen this across the country where, you know, a guy who's hunted uh, most of his life and is getting older and just doesn't hunt as much anymore, sure, he's still into it, but maybe not as much, suddenly has an opportunity to really pass some of that knowledge that he has on to a young boy or a young girl. And I've seen people get really engaged again and just really excited about hunting. So uh, I see that as one of the biggest bright spots going forward. Yeah. Thus, so we have these new youth coming in, but at least as, as big of a deal is some re-engagement of these older folks as mentors. Um, I like that a lot. Has there been any new data? I, I haven't seen this, so there probably isn't, but, but maybe you know something I don't. Is there any new data when it comes to hunter... Um, Oh gosh, what's the right word? Hunter recruitment? Anything new on that front? Are we seeing? I know a few years ago we started talking about a little bit of an uptick there with more youth, more female hunters. Um, do we see anything new when it comes to that trend yet? I haven't seen uh, the data out of 2016 yet. I do know that there's more programs for them, kind of the R3 programs, you know, the the recruit and uh, and reactivate mm-hmm. and uh, and cane hunters. So you're seeing more of that from the states, and uh, and and we have a person 
from QDMA that sits on one of those committees and works actively. So you see a lot of programs to help that. Um, there's more opportunities for those kids, partly because as you know, we reduce more barriers each year, you end up with more states you know, that, that either reduce the minimum age requirements or relax some of those requirements to get kids involved. So uh, I have not seen actual numbers from last year, but I do know that we're seeing more opportunities and more programs to help that. So uh, hopefully that will indicate that, yeah, we actually do have more kids getting involved. And, you know, and nobody ever talks about the other side of it, that mentor side that I did a minute ago. But uh, I think that we should. I think that is extremely important and, you know, and one that we can't overlook. Yeah, that's a great point and something I hadn't really thought about myself either. So it makes a lot of sense. So, Kip, we've talked about the current situation of the deer hunting world. We talked a little bit about the future of the deer hunting world. What does the future of Kip Adams' deer hunting world look like for 2017? Do you have uh, anything you're particularly excited about on the farm? Any uh, any buck you're after or anything like that? Uh, I am always excited about deer season. Actually, uh, this past weekend, uh, I have two young kids, a 10-year-old daughter and a 7-year-old son. So uh, we were out uh, on Saturday actively. We were cutting some trees, doing some habitat work this winter to uh, to increase our chances this fall of crossing paths with a with a buck or a, a doe of our dreams. So uh, I'll spend a, a bunch of time uh, this winter and this this summer with my kids, improving habitat, which is always a good thing. Um, we'll do a bunch of camera surveys to have a really good idea of what's out there this fall. Um, I will likely spend uh, much, or at least I hope so, much of this fall. Um, with my daughter or my son at my side, um, they're both at the age where they want to go every day. Uh, I don't take them together. <laughs> they're they're uh, like a typical brother and sister where they spend a lot of time uh, fighting each other. So, uh, but <laughs> it's rare that I go here on our farm without one of them. And uh, so uh, my personal opportunities decline some with them. But uh, man, I wouldn't pass it for anything. It, uh, it's, it's quality time with them, and uh, I, I love every second of it. So I would guess my 2017 season will. Will involve a lot with my kids and uh, hopefully uh, my daughter's first deer this fall, which will be uh, tremendous. And then uh, um, maybe some really good sits with my son as well. Very cool. That sounds awesome. What? Uh, wh- where can our listeners go if they found all of this intriguing and they want to learn more? Where Where can they get the Whitetail Report because that is available for everybody? And um, and where can they learn more about what you're doing with the QDMA? They can go to, to QDMA.com. Um, and find uh, a wealth of information on, on all aspects of deer or habitat management there, all kinds of articles, uh, et cetera, at that site. Um, they can also download our Whitetail Report for free. Um, they can purchase a hard copy if they want, but uh, they can get a free download right from our website. And actually, they can download uh, every single Whitetail Report uh, back to 2009 just to, to see how trends have changed and, and, and what the big issues have been to change. But uh, it's all uh, free for the taking at, at QDMA.com. Excellent. Well, I'll make sure to include a link to that. Highly recommend you guys all listening. Download that report. Download some of the past reports. Um, there's some really interesting stuff in there. And as Kip alluded to, you know, every year they cover some different issues, too, that are pertinent and interesting just as much now as they might have been last year or a few years ago when they originally wrote some of those pieces. So check those out. They're great free PDF downloads, and uh, I highly recommend them. And Kip, thank you so much for coming on here again and joining us and, and sharing your wealth of information. Uh, Hey, great talking to you, Mark. Uh, Have a good spring, and certainly good luck this fall. Sounds good. Same to you. And that is it for us today. A few quick updates, though, before we go. First, if you're familiar with our other podcast, the 100% Wild Podcast, which I've partnered with Drew Outdoors on, you know that we answer listener-submitted questions on that show. 
And right now, we're in need of some new questions to tackle related to off-season topics, you know, stuff that's relevant to what's happening right now. Things like habitat work and food plots or scouting or off-season tree stand work, all that kind of good stuff. We'd love to talk about that. So if you have a specific question on a topic related in some way to those kinds of things, you can submit those questions by going to wiretohunt.com slash 100% wild. And that's 100, the number, 100, and then the words percent wild. So check that out. Send us your questions. We'd love to tackle them. Moving on, I do want to thank our partners who have made this podcast possible. So big thank you to Sitka Gear, Yeti Coolers, Ozonics, Redneck Blinds, Maven Optics, Whitetail Institute of North America, Carbon Express, and Huntera Maps. And finally, Thank you all so much for listening and for being a part of this community. I appreciate you, and I hope you'll stay wired to hunt. Hey, everybody knows Weber Grills. I've been using Weber Grills my whole life, and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. Now, with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full great sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.